This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 8, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today, inshallah, we, be, we will be concluding the story of the Battle of Karbala. Of course, this is a very important event in Islamic history. And initially, I intended this to be split between two different episodes, but uh, it was easier. I won't say easier. It's actually, I just felt it would be better for you if I put everything in one extra long episode. And this is going to be a long one. It's going to be a doozy here. Rather than try to split up in two episodes and and you know spread things out longer than it had to be, so just a just a quick recap of events before we dig into the show. First, it starts off with Yazid ibn Muawiyah. He became the caliph, but Hussein and ibn Zubair. Hussein is the son of Ali. They both refused to pledge. The Shiites of Kufa or the Shia to Ali, the party that supported Ali and Kufa, they invite Hussein to come and take over the city that his father once ruled. Hussein sends his cousin Muslim Ibn Aqil to Kufa ahead of him to check things out, to scout around, make sure things are truly okay. When Muslim Ibn Aqil gets to Kufa, he sees that, hey, everybody wants to give bayat to, uh, to uh, Hussein. He writes back to Hussein, come on down. Everybody seems to want you over here. So Hussein sets out for Kufa. However, in the meantime, Muslim Ibn Aqil is eventually captured and executed by the Umayyads, primarily by the uh, governor of Kufa, Ubaidullah um, Ibn Ziyad. Hussein doesn't know this. He sets out, but eventually he is intercepted by uh, a Mayyad army of over 4,000 soldiers being led by Umar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. He stops Hussein just outside of Kufa. So Hussein and his group, they take refuge in an abandoned village called Dhatul Irq, which is near the Euphrates River. And that's pretty much where our story picks up. Picks up with Hussein and his group at this abandoned village while Umar ibn Sa'ad's army is blocking their access to the water. So now you know we're going to start off at. Let's get into it. So stay tuned after the show for insights into the episode. They'll also, I also wanted to, I would briefly discuss the uh, briefly discuss the differences of opinion regarding this um, this battle at at Karbala between uh, Sunnis and Shias, just so you can try to understand the differences the differences between the two. But I won't really go into a lot of detail in this episode. But I will discuss it in a future episode, inshallah. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Kardbala2. And if you'd like to support the show, you can, of course, do so at patreon.com slash Islamic History. And so with that, let's get into the show. This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 8, Kardbala, Part 2. Prologue Al-Mawzul, Al-Iraq, Wahid wa Sabaun, Sanatu Hijriya. Mawzul, Iraq, 71 AH. Qasim ibn Habib walked through the Umayyad camp trying his best to blend in. He wanted to look like any other soldier. He wore an armored breastplate over a red tunic with metal arm guards strapped to his wrist. A black turban sat upon his head, a small bag was slung across his back, and a thin dagger hung by his side. 
There was an air of tension in the camp. Ibn Zubair's army was rumored to be headed for Syria and the Umayyads were determined to stop him at Mosul. Qasim ibn Habib did not care about the politics or the war. All he cared about was finding the old man. As Qasim walked towards the old man's tent, he took in the sights and sounds around him. He was fascinated by the odd combination of energy and boredom inside a military camp. There were women who had followed their men to the front lines. There were hundreds of camp followers such as merchants, tailors, healers, and even fortune tellers. There were cooks and slaves and prisoners and even the occasional poet who would compose sonnets for the warriors. Before long, Qasim ibn Habib found himself before the old man's tent. A tethered horse stood next to the tent, slowly munching on dry grass. He glanced around to make sure no one was looking. Then he stooped down and ducked inside the tent. The old man was sleeping. His chest rose up and down gently, his gray beard covering much of his face. Qasim knelt down beside the old man and tapped him on the shoulder. The old man woke with a start. He sputtered and blinked at Qasim ibn Habib trying to focus. Who are you? he asked. I'm from Kufa, replied Qasim. Someone told me you were also from Kufa. Yes, said the old man, squinting at Qasim. Do I know you? Qasim ignored his question. Is it true you once fought for Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan? Yes, that's true, the old man sat up on his elbows. I served under Amir al-Mu'mineen and his son Yazid. I don't remember much about Muawiyah, but I do remember Yazid. Well, it was a difficult time. Rebellions everywhere. The empire was split apart. The Romans were trying to take advantage of it all, <laughs> just like it is now. The old man took another look at Qasim. What did you say your name was? Did you know Ziad ibn Abihi? asked Qasim, once again ignoring the man's question. The old man chuckled. <laughs> You're lucky he's not alive to hear you say that. He hated that name. We always called him Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan when he was around. Yes, I knew him. I was a young man when he became governor of Kufa. What about his son? Abedullah ibn Ziyad? Yep, I knew him too. He was a bigger head case than his father was, if you can't believe that. The old man started to rise. One last question, said Qasim. Were you at Karbala? The old man froze. His face hardened and his eyes narrowed as he studied Qasim's face. Suddenly, the old man tried to jump up, but Qasim hit him in the face when he fell right back down. Qasim jumped on the man's chest and whipped out his dagger. He rammed it down into the old man's throat. Blood spurted out of the man's neck and splattered against the insides of the tent. The old man tried to scream, but no sound could get past the hole in his throat. Qasim stabbed him three more times, twice in the chest and once in the ribs. By the time he was done, Qasim was nearly covered in blood. Blood was pooling around the old man's body and running towards the edge of the tent. Qasim hurriedly stripped off his armored chest plate and arm guards. The red tunic underneath hid the blood stains. He untied his turban and used it to wipe the blood off his hands, knife, and face. He stuffed them all into his bag, slung it over his shoulder, and made to leave. But before he did, he turned back to the dead man lying on the ground. My name is Qasim ibn Habib, he told the corpse, and I remember you. That al-Iraq, al-Iraq, wahid wa sitin, sanatu hijriyah. That al-Iraq, Iraq, 61 AH. Hussein knew they could not last much longer. The situation was getting worse by the day. 
It was their third day in the village of Zaytun Irk and little progress had been made. Hussein had brought his group to the village because it was close to the Euphrates River. Unfortunately, Omar ibn Sa'ad arrived the next day with 4,500 men and blocked all access. For three days, the two leaders tried to negotiate a truce, but nothing had come of their efforts. Hussein knew it would be impossible to enter Kufa now. His dream of re-establishing his father's caliphate was over. Banu Umayyah had full control of the city and the Kufans were mentally and spiritually defeated. All Hussein could hope for was an honorable end to this fiasco and his family's safety. He told as much to Omar ibn Sa'ad. It's obvious the people of Kufa don't want me here, he had told the Umayyad commander. Let me return to the Hijaz and this can end here and now. But Omar ibn Sa'ad was beholden to the governor of Kufa. That is not an option, Omar ibn Sa'ad had responded. The governor said you only have one option, unconditional surrender. I have children who are dying here, Hussein had yelled back. You want them to die because of what your governor says? It is not about what I want. I am following orders. You'd be wise to do the same. They had run out of water the previous day and were suffering from severe thirst. At first, the children cried relentlessly, grabbing at their helpless mothers. But by the end of the day, their bodies were too dry to produce any tears. Hussein had walked by several children just laying down, tongues lolling from their mouths, lips peeling and blistered. Some of them raised a hand towards him as if begging for relief. His heart broke when he saw these sights, but he was just as helpless as their mothers. His children were suffering as well. Hussein's son, Ali the Middle, the one they called Zainal Abidin, had developed a fever. But without water, they could not cool him down. The poor boy was burning from within. That night, Hussein decided to take action. He commissioned 20 men to sneak past the Umayyads and fetch water from the river. They were to avoid violence if possible, but be ready to fight if necessary. His half-brother, Abbas ibn Ali, and a big shaggy-haired Kufin Shiite named Nafia al-Jamali led the mission. Less than an hour later, the men returned, all of them carrying skins full of water. Thankfully, none of them were injured. In fact, with the exception of Nafia stabbing one of the Umayyad soldiers, the water mission was a success. Karbala, Al-Iraq, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya Karbala, Iraq, 61 AH That was very foolish, Hussein, said Omar ibn Sa'ad. You're going to turn this into something ugly. Omar had called this meeting with Hussein after several Shias had stolen water from the river. One of Hussein's thugs had killed an Umayyad soldier. They were standing in the open field of Karbala, each accompanied by 20 men. Karbala was just west of the Euphrates between the village and the river. Its ground was flat and the soil was hard-packed clay, perfect for horses and marching soldiers. It is already something ugly, replied Hussein. My women and children are suffering and near death. What would you have me do? Surrender, submit, and pledge, same as before. Hussein spat. What is wrong with you, Ibn Sa'ad? You're better than this. Your father was better than this. I am not my father, yelled Omar. Apparently not, Hussein replied. You cannot win this, Hussein. 
surrender, submit, and pledge, and this will all be over. I'd like to propose three different options. First, you and I can go to Damascus and I'll give Yazid the pledge. Or you can let me go back to the Hejaz. Or you may send me to the frontiers where I'll spend my last days fighting the Romans. Either way, you will not have any more trouble from me. Omar admitted those were all good options, but it was not up to him. I will send your terms to the governor. Perhaps he will accept one of them. Omar turned his horse around and headed back to the camp, his men trotting close behind. He prayed Ubaidullah would accept one of Hussein's proposals. Doing so would end this affair and keep things from getting worse. But Omar knew Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad always found a way to make things worse. Darul Imara, Al-Kufa, Wahid Wasitin, Senatu Hijriya. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 61 AH. What are you thinking, Shamir? asked Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. I don't like this, Shamir replied. It makes you look weak. Ubaidullah nodded. Shamir ibn Dhul Jaushan was a sharif from Banu Kilab, one of the oldest and most noblest clans in Arabia. Many of them had settled in Syria after the Muslim conquest and were staunch supporters of Banu Umayyah. How so? asked Ubaidullah. They had just received Omar ibn Sa'ad's message with Hussein's three proposals. All three options allow him to leave unscathed. Hussein came and camped on your land with the intention of overthrowing you. By Allah's mercy, he has failed in that objective. But if you let him leave without submitting to you, then you will look weak. Ubaidullah stroked his short beard. He liked the way Shamir thought. The man knew his politics. You are the governor, Shamir continued. He shall submit to Amir al-Mu'minin through you. And then you will have the choice to punish him or forgive him. That is more fitting. And if he refuses? What of it? He would have no one else to blame but himself. This whole thing stinks of Omar ibn Sa'ad. It sounds to me like he's trying to wriggle out of his duty. Ubaidullah agreed. His spies in Omar's army had confirmed he and Hussein were always meeting and negotiating. Omar should have taken Hussein by surprise and killed anyone who tried to intervene. Had they done that, this whole thing would be over by now. Instead, the standoff at that to Iraq had gone on for nearly a week. You were right, Shamir. It's time to bring this foolishness to an end. Allah. Dhatul Irq, Al-Iraq, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Dhatul Irq, Iraq, 61 AH. Hussein, wake up! Hussein's eyes fluttered open. He had dozed off in the shade of a dilapidated wall after the midday prayer. In his dream, he had seen his grandfather. Zainab and his half-brother, Abbas ibn Ali, were standing over him. Hussein, Zainab said, they're coming! The enemy is advancing, said Abbas ibn Ali. Hussein shook the dream from his head. He did not understand what was going on. Why were they advancing? He had offered to lay down his arms and pledge to Yazid. Isn't that what they wanted? Hussein stood up, dusting off the sand and leaves that had settled on him during his nap. Ride out to meet them, brother. Find out what's happening. 
Abbas returned half an hour later. Ibn Sa'ad said the governor has rejected all of your proposals. You must surrender to the governor immediately or they will fight us. There are no other options. Hussein grimaced. He could never surrender to Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. The governor's father had orchestrated Hujr ibn Adi's execution and falsified his own lineage. And Ubaidullah was directly responsible for the deaths of Muslim ibn Aqil, Hani ibn Urwa, and many others. Hussein would not suffer the humiliation of being paraded through Kufa in chains by a bastard branch of Banu Umayyah. Go back to Ibn Sa'ad, Hussein told Abbas. Ask him to give us until the morning to consider his demands. He should have no problem agreeing to that. Abbas returned, stating that Omar ibn Sa'ad had agreed to give them one night to surrender. Later that evening, Hussein gathered his men in his tent. His sister was near the back of the tent, caring for Zain al-Abidin, who was still sick. He began by praising Allah and sending blessings on Prophet Muhammad. Then he began. My brothers, you are the best people in this world. You are my followers and my Ahlul Bayt. You have proven your loyalty and piety and have fulfilled your oaths. Our enemies are approaching and I believe my last day on this world will come tomorrow. These people want me. There is no reason for you to suffer on my behalf. Use this night as a cover and leave while you still can. I will hold nothing against you and I free you of all obligations. His cousin Abdullah ibn Jafar spoke up. Why would I want to stay alive while you are dead? May Allah protect me from that. The other men nodded in agreement. Then one of the Sharia from Kufa spoke up next. How could we leave you, Ibn Rasulullah? How could we stand before Allah having abandoned his beloved servant, son of his beloved servant? By Allah, shouted another Shia, I would rather be killed, brought back to life, burnt to ashes, and scattered to the wind seventy times over than abandon you, Ibn Rasulullah. Zuhair ibn Uqayn, the man who divorced his wife to join Hussein, stood up next. I would rather die a thousand times if it meant protecting you and your Ahlul Bayt. Nafi al-Jamali, the big shaggy-haired Kufin, spoke next. By Allah, we will never leave you, Ibn Ali. We will sacrifice our lives for you. We will protect you with our necks, our hands, and our heads. An older Shia named Habib al-Mudahir was next. I am an old man, Ibn Ali, and death will come for me soon. If it comes tomorrow, then let it be with me fulfilling the promise I gave you and your father. One by one, all of the men said essentially the same thing. All of them pledged their lives to Hussein and his Ahlul Bayt. Karbala, Al-Iraq, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Karbala, Iraq, 61 AH. Omar ibn Sa'ad. Omar ibn Sa'ad took an arrow from the quiver attached to his saddle. Take note of the date, he told his scribe. 10th Muharram, 61st year of the migration. Let the record witness that Omar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas of Banu Zuhra of the Quraysh struck first. He notched the arrow to his bow and let it fly over the heads of his soldiers and across the battlefield. The arrowhead landed with a solid thunk in the hard ground of Karbala. Omar did not want this, but the governor's orders were clear. Hussein has only one option, the governor's letter had said. 
immediate and unconditional surrender. If he surrenders, then bring him back to me in chains. If he refuses, then fight him and kill him and his supporters. When he is dead, trample his body with horses and send his head back to me. If you do not comply, then you must step down and hand over command to my good friend, Shamir ibn Dhul Jaushan. Omar had given Hussein one night to consider the governor's ultimatum, hoping he'd surrender. Instead, Hussein had used the night to prepare for battle. His sharia had brought their tents together and set them on fire. They had also dug a ditch along their right flank, filled it with wood, and set that aflame as well. The fiery ditch forced the Umayyas to approach from the left. Very clever, Hussein, Omar had muttered when he saw it, but it will not save you. He studied Hussein's pitiful battle arrangement on the other side of Karbala. They had about 40 horsemen and maybe 50 soldiers. Omar ibn Sa'ad shook his head and sighed. Then he gave the order to march. Like one great armored wave, 4,500 soldiers marched in slow, methodic union. His army was divided into left and right wings. Each wing was further divided into two halves, one cavalry and one infantry. As the space between the two forces narrowed, Hur ibn Yazid rode up along Omar. Hur had led the advance guard that had first encountered Hussein over a week ago. Commander, said Hur, are we really going to do this? Yes, replied Omar, never taking his eyes off the field before him. Do you really intend to kill the grandson of the messenger of Allah? He is a rebel and this is war. But what about his three proposals? asked Hur. If I was in charge, I would accept any one of them, Omar replied. Hur gave Omar a hard look. Ibn Sa'ad, you are in charge here. You are the commander. Omar could not think of an answer, and by the time he did, Hur had ridden away. Zainab bent Ali Zainab looked in awe at the massive host coming across Karbala. She had not seen a force that large since her father was caliph. She saw endless columns of armored men with swords and lances and shields. The tips of their spears gleamed bright yellow in the early morning sun. The steady march of their feet grew louder by the second. How could the Kufans do this to her brother? How could they call him here, then betray him like this? She heard her brother calling out to the Umayyads as they approached. People, let me remind you why I am here. You called me. And I will leave if you do not want me here. You have no reason to harm me nor my Ahlul Bayt. Think of what you're doing and think of who I am. Aren't I the son of Fatima, the daughter of your prophet? Aren't I also the son of his cousin and the first of the believers? Is it my uncle Hamza, the leader of the martyrs? Is it my uncle Jafar ibn Abi Talib, the one who flies with two wings in heaven? Haven't you heard what my grandfather said about my brother and I? All of these should be enough to keep you from shedding my blood. His words made Zainab and several other women cry. Some of them were shrieking so loudly, Hussein sent one of his brothers to quiet them down. Then Zuhair ibn Uqoyn rode forth to say his part. We are still brothers so long as you do not fight us. What has this man done to make you want to kill him? Has he killed one of your men? Has he taken your property? Your men in Damascus will be satisfied with you without you killing him. Enough talking, yelled one of the Umayyad commanders. Let's send these traitors to hell. 
The Umayyads halted just a few hundred yards from Hussein's front line. There was a deathly quiet as the men scrambled to get back into the formation they had lost during the short march. There was a slight disturbance to their left and Zainab saw Hur ibn Yazid, one of the Umayyad commanders, galloping towards Hussein. For a second, she thought he had snuck through their defenses and was trying to end it by killing her brother in one stroke. Then Hur reared up his horse and leapt down. Hussein's men whipped out their swords and rushed towards him. Hussein ordered them to hold back. Hord walked up to Hussein and grabbed his hand. To Zainab's surprise, the man was weeping. May Allah forgive me, Ibn Rasulullah, Hord said. This is my fault. I stopped you from going back to Mecca when you had the chance. I never thought these people would resort to killing you. I offer my life for you, Ibn Rasulullah. Will you forgive me? Of course, said Hussein, putting his hands on Hord's shoulders. May Allah accept your repentance and forgive you. Hord means free, and you are a free man in this world and the next. Hussein ibn Ali Hussein looked over the army lined up against him, thousands of soldiers against his tiny band of men. He tried to reason with them, but his words had fell on deaf ears. As was tradition, there would be several rounds of single combat before the actual battle began. The big shaggy-haired Shia named Nafia al-Jamali was the first to duel. One of the Umayyad champions came out to challenge him. The two men danced around each other, fainting and parrying, trying to find a weakness. The Umayyad swung at Nafia, who swatted away his strike with casual ease. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali, said Nafia. I am al-Jamali. I believe in the religion of Ali. The Umayyad man swung at Nafia's head, but the big man deftly sidestepped and swung back at him. Nafia's blow rang against the man's head and would have split his skull were it not for his helmet. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali, repeated Nafia. I am al-Jamali. I believe in the religion of Ali. The Umayyad man was dazed by the blow and wobbly on his feet. He lunged at Nafia who dodged and brought his sword down. The blow smashed through the man's shoulder blade as he let out a painful scream and fell to the ground. Nafia grabbed a handful of the man's hair from behind, yanked back, and cut his throat. Inni al-Jamali, said Nafia, retreating back to his ranks, amantubidini Ali. There were several more duels, and Hussein's men won every one of them. If only we could duel all day, thought Hussein, we might actually win this thing. But the Umayyads got tired of losing. Stop this foolishness, said Ahmad ibn Hajjaj, the commander of the Umayyad right wing. We have thousands of men. We could throw rocks at them and we'd still destroy them. Ahmad ibn Hajjaj launched an assault against Hussein's left while Shamir ibn Dhul Jaushan attacked his right. Since the fiery ditch protected their right, Hussein decided to focus on the left. Hold steady, men, Hussein called out. He only had about 20 soldiers on the left, while this first wave of Umayyads numbered at least 500. Nafia, we need you over here. Nafia turned his shaggy head towards Ahmad ibn Hajjaj's approaching troops. He grunted and unslung his bow. He withdrew an arrow from his quiver which had his name etched into the head. He notched the arrow to the bow and drew back. Inni al-Jamali, he said. Amantubidini Ali. There was a thrum, and the arrow flew from Nafia's bow. 
It found its mark and struck the nearest Umayyad soldier down. Allahu Akbar, Hussein exclaimed, again. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. Another thrum as a second arrow flew and another Umayyad soldier went down. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. Nafia repeated, notching another arrow. His shots were coming faster now and had developed a rhythm. Inni al-Jamali, notch. Amantubidini Ali, thrum. Each shot dropped another Umayyad. With Nafia protecting the left, Hussein turned his attention to his right flank. As expected, the ditch was forcing the Umayyads into a bottleneck. This made it easier for his men to fight them off. Then a group of Umayyad cavalry broke off and headed towards the tents where the women and children were. Hussein's anger boiled over at such cowardice. What kind of men were these? Even with all their numbers, they still resorted to attacking women and children. Zuhair, he called. He's going for the women. Stop him. Omar ibn Sa'ad What is that fool doing? Omar groaned. He was on his horse, observing the battle from the rear. He saw Shamir ibn Dhul Shen making a dash for a tent filled with women. When Hussein's forces beat Shamir back, Omar ibn Sa'ad felt doubly embarrassed. He was embarrassed his soldiers attacked a bunch of women and embarrassed they had been chased off by only 15 men. Despite losing every single duel, Omar did not believe Hussein's men were better fighters. Omar had led many of these men into battle before and he knew they were formidable warriors. But he felt that many of them were like Hord and did not really want to fight Hussein. The thought of Hord put a bitter taste in his mouth. He should have known that traitor would turn against him. After all, Hord had been soft on Hussein from the very beginning. It did not matter. Hord would die just like Hussein. Banu Umayyah still had the numbers, and Omar still knew how to fight. Ibn Tamim, he called to one of his captains, get some archers and take out their horses. With their smaller numbers, Hussein's men were using their speed and mobility to their advantage. With nothing to lose, the Shia frustrated the Umayyads with brazen, unorthodox attacks. Ibn Tamim gathered hundreds of archers and positioned them just behind the front ranks. Then he gave the order to fire. The effect was devastating. One minute, Hussein's Shia were darting everywhere, attacking at will. The next, dozens of dead horses lay across the battlefield as their riders scrambled back to their lines under a shower of arrows. Commander, said Ibn Tamim, returning, it is done. Good. Prepare for a full frontal assault. Let's get this over with. Zainab bint Ali For a moment, Zainab had the wild hope that Hussein just might pull this off. The fiery ditch had proven to be an effective barrier. Zuhair had successfully defended the women, and Nafia al-Jamali was dropping the Umayyads like flies as he chanted his one-line song. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. I am al-Jamali. I believe in the religion of Ali. But then the Umayyads destroyed Hussein's cavalry. On foot, Hussein's tiny force looked pitiful against the great Umayyad horde. Zainab knew how things would go. The Shia from the other clans would be the first line of defense. Then the men of Banu Hashim. And finally, Hussein. The old man named Habib al-Mudahir raised his sword and rushed at the Umayyads. Seven Shia followed him into the fray. 
Habib fought like a man half his age. Zainab could not believe the ferocity he summoned as he struck the Umayyads. He struck left and right, nearly clearing a path to the wing commander, Amr ibn Hajjaj. But then someone struck him from behind and Habib fell to the ground. He tried to pull himself up, but another soldier hit him in the leg and he fell back down. Then a third chopped off his head with one stroke. Zainab looked away as the Umayyad soldiers argued over who had the right to Habib's head. Further down the battlefield, Hur and Zuhair were working together against the Umayyads. They tore into the Umayyad ranks, scattering soldiers left and right. When Hur got surrounded, Zuhair would rush to his side. When Zuhair got surrounded, Hur would rush to his side. But they eventually began to wear down. Zainab did not know if it was from fatigue or injury, but Hur seemed to have spent himself. He got surrounded again, and when Zuhair tried to help him, this time, he waved him off. Zuhair understood. He gave Hur a final nod and fought his way back to Hussein. The Umayyads closed in on Hur, who held them off as long as he could. Then someone stabbed him in with a spear, and another man struck him in the side, and Hur went down for good. Hussein ibn Ali Hussein was able to break away from the fighting to lead some of his men in the fear prayer. This was a special battlefield prayer where two rows took turns standing and prostrating. The standing row was to remain vigilant while the others prostrated. After the prayer, Zuhair informed Hussein that Habib and Hud were dead. You have guided and have been rightly guided, Ibn Rasulullah, said Zuhair. Today, I will meet your grandfather. Before Hussein could respond, Zuhair had turned and ran back to the front lines. A few minutes later, he received word that Zuhair had been struck down. They've passed the ditch, someone yelled. We are flanked. Hussein turned towards Nafi al-Jamali, who was still defending the left. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. Nafia, Hussein called. Our right flank is breached. Can you hold them off? As long as Allah gives me breath, Ibn Rasulullah. May Allah have mercy on you, Al-Jamali, said Hussein before riding off. Omar Ibn Sa'ad It would not be long now, Omar thought. Shamir launched a strong attack and Hussein's right flank crumbled before the onslaught. The Umayyads tore through the remaining Shias as they pushed towards Hussein. Since Hussein was the greatest prize, the men of Banu Hashim formed up to create a second line of defense. To Omar's surprise, the forward momentum of the Umayyad thrust came to a sudden halt. Omar peered ahead and saw one man holding off Shamir's entire force. The man's shaggy hair and beard were unmistakable. It was Nafi al-Jamali, one of the Shias from Kufa. Nafia's right hand was a blur as it flew back and forth from quiver to bow, loosening arrows in a deadly barrage. Above the sound of battle, Omar heard Nafia chanting, Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. Omar did not understand. Shouldn't Nafia believe in the religion of Muhammad? When the last arrow was spent, Nafia threw down his bow and pulled out a sword and dagger. Then he threw himself at the Umayyads. Omar watched with mixed admiration and disgust as Nafia struck at the Umayyads with both hands. He whirled, slashed, and cut everything around him. All the while, he kept chanting his silly ditty. Inni al-Jamali, amantubidini Ali. But then the song was cut short. 
Someone smashed Nafia's left arm with a shield. The big man grunted in pain and dropped his dagger. He turned to slash with his right hand, but someone hit his arm first, cracking that one as well. Nafia went down, but Shamir would not let his men kill him. Instead, he dragged him back to Omar. What have you done to yourself, Nafia? said Omar, shaking his head. I haven't done anything wrong, said Nafia, tired and out of breath. His face was bruised and blood soaked into his shaggy beard. If my arms were not broken, I would still be out there killing your men. Kill him, said Shamir. May Allah reward you for it. I'm in charge here, Omar snapped. He's your prisoner. If you want him dead, then you kill him. Nafia smiled. All praises to Allah who allowed me to die at the hands of a wicked man. Shamir placed the tip of his sword in Nafia's back and pushed until the blade came through the front of his chest. Are we done here? asked Omar tersely. Shamir used his foot to hold Nafia's body down as he dislodged his sword. Not quite, grinned Shamir. We've got a few more rebels to kill. Zainab bent Ali Zainab watched in horror as Nafia was swallowed by the Umayyad horde and the remnants of Hussein's front line were cut down. The last non-Hashim defender was Abisa Shakri, the third greatest swordsman Arabia had ever known. The Umayyads were rightfully hesitant to attack Abis. When none of them offered to fight, Abis ripped off his armor and helmet and rushed at them. Besides her father, Zainab had never seen such a magnificent fighter. Abis handled his sword like a calligrapher's pen. He parried and blocked the Umayyad strikes with ease. It was like he knew where they were going to strike before they did. His sword sliced through the enemy like a butcher's knife. There were no wasted movements, no cheap shots. Every blow killed cleanly and quickly. It was like his sword was the angel of death itself. But Abis was not an angel. He was only human. The Umayyad surrounded him and someone shot him in the leg with an arrow. Hobbled, Abis missed a parry and the blow lodged deep into his neck. Abis's body stiffened in shock and pain and the horde pounced. The Umayyad stabbed him countless times before leaving his lifeless body on the ground. With the front line gone, the men of Banu Hashim would be the last line of defense before getting to Hussein. That line included Zainab's two sons, Aus and Muhammad, who had chosen to follow the older men into battle. The men of Banu Hashim lined up before Hussein. Sixteen men against thousands. Hussein ibn Ali The front ranks of the Umayyads crept towards Banu Hashim. Hold steady, Hussein ordered his men. Don't throw yourself into destruction. These are an evil people, father, shouted his oldest son, Ali al-Akbar, or Ali the elder. Hold steady, son, Hussein repeated. I am Ali, the son of Hussein, the son of Ali, his son shouted at the approaching Umayyads. We come from the house of Rasulullah. Easy, son, said Hussein soothingly. Let the battle come to you. I will not be judged by the son of the bastard. Alil Akbar rushed forward and attacked the first ranks of Umayyads. Alil Akbar, shouted Hussein, but his son could not hear him. 
he was too busy trying to kill Umayyads. Alil Akbar had never been in battle before and should have been cut down immediately. But the Umayyads were reluctant to attack him. They gave him a wide berth and stayed away from his sword. Alil Akbar, get back in the ranks! If his son heard him, he did not respond. Then one of the Umayyads walked up quietly behind Alil Akbar who was screaming curses at the soldiers. Hussein recognized him as one of the men who supported his father during the Battle of the Camel. Alil Akbar! Hussein yelled at the top of his lungs. This time, his son heard him. Alil Akbar stopped yelling and looked behind, but it was too late. No! screamed Hussein as the Umayyad soldier cut Alil Akbar across the back of his calf, severing his hamstring. Alil Akbar shrieked and crumpled to the ground. Then those same men who were so reluctant to attack just a few seconds earlier pounced on Alil Akbar and cut him to pieces. Hussein heard himself screaming. He heard his sister screaming behind him. He heard the men of Banu Hashim screaming. He heard his son screaming as he died beneath the Umayyad swords. The men of Banu Hashim rushed forwards and fought viciously. They grabbed Alil Akbar's body and by some miracle made it back to the front lines. Hussein dismounted his horse and knelt by his son. His mind was blank as he put a hand on the boy's face, mangled with horrible slashes. Then he lifted the body and carried it over to Zainab's tent. It was only when he placed his dead son on the ground did he allow the tears to flow. Hussein's sorrow quickly turned to rage as he returned to the battle. The only thing on his mind was killing as many Umayyads as possible. They were creeping in again, forming a semicircle around Banu Hashim. And then the Umayyads attacked all at once. Hussein was back on his horse, slashing every which way with his sword. He unleashed his sorrow and fury on these men who came to kill innocent children. But despite their bravery, one by one, the men of Banu Hashim were cut down. Zainab's two sons were killed almost immediately. They were only about 13 years old with no military experience and made easy targets. An arrow struck Muslim ibn Akhil's son Abdullah in the heart. Muslim ibn Akhil's brothers Abdurrahman and Ja'far were cut down. Abdullah ibn Ali and Ja'far ibn Ali were cut down by swords. Uthman ibn Ali was shot with arrows and then nearly cut in half. Muhammad ibn Ali was shot with arrows and then beheaded. Abbas ibn Ali was shot down with arrows as well. Hassan's sons, Abu Bakr ibn Hassan and 14-year-old Qasim ibn Hassan were also killed. And then Hussein was alone. An arrow hit his horse and it reared up. Before Hussein could get the beast under control, five more arrows struck and it fell down dead. Hussein pulled himself up and surveyed the scene. The women were wailing and crying. Some of the Umayyads had broken off from the fighting and were tearing down the tents looking for plunder. All around him were the dead bodies of his cousins, brothers, and nephews. Hussein was angry and tired and thirsty. Life meant nothing to him now. All he wanted was to see his sons take a drink of water and go out fighting. Most of the Umayyads had fallen back. The battle was effectively over and no one wanted to miss out on the plunder but a group of 20 soldiers were still coming towards Hussein. They approached him cautiously even though all of his defenders were dead. Hussein ignored them and sat down near the bodies of his family. Zainab was there also, weeping and stroking the hair of her dead sons. Where's my son? he asked her. 
When she did not respond, he shouted towards a group of women huddled and crying by one of the tents. Bring me my son! A few seconds later, a young woman brought six-month-old Ali al-Ashar to him. She placed him in Hussein's lap, then hurried away. The baby was fussy, but his cries were hoarse and weakened by thirst. Hussein brought him up and kissed his cheeks and smelled his neck. Then he felt something warm and wet on his hands. The boy has urinated on me, thought Hussein, pulling the child away. Then he gasped in horror. It was not the baby's urine he had felt. It was his blood. Omar ibn Sa'ad Who shot the baby? Omar asked ibn Tamim. The captain shrugged. It may have been an accident. Perhaps someone was aiming for Hussein and missed. Shamir and his men were now circling Hussein, who had placed the dead baby on the ground next to the other bodies. Omar was sick. It was not supposed to go this way. Why didn't Hussein surrender? Why didn't Ubaidullah go a little easier? Deep inside, Omar had another question. Why didn't he just let Hussein go? Omar shoved that thought aside. This was not his fault. He was just following orders. He never wanted this in the first place. He rode towards Hussein's camp, observing the destruction all around him. The bodies of dead men and horses lay strewn about. Near the tents, the women were lining up the dead of Banu Hashim. He saw old men, young men, boys, and one little baby. Blood was everywhere. The fire in the ditch had burnt out, but a bitter cloud of smoke hung over everything. Women and children were screaming and crying. Pots, knives, and jars lay broken and busted about the ground. Umayyad soldiers were tearing down the tents, rummaging through the enemy's possessions and carrying away everything of value. And far to the right, there was Hussein. He was swinging his sword wildly like a madman. He cursed a small crowd of Umayyad men and challenged them to line up and fight him one by one. The soldiers jeered at him, but none of them were brave enough to accept his challenge. Omar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, someone yelled. He looked around. His eyes fell on Hussein's sister, Zainab bint Ali. This is your doing, she yelled at him. You killed my sons. You killed my nephews. You killed my cousins. Are you going to let them kill my brother? I am just following orders, he replied meekly. He turned away from Zainab and rode towards the men surrounding Hussein. They blocked Omar's view, which he was grateful for. He did not want to look Hussein in the eyes. Shamir saw Omar approaching and walked towards him. Do you plan on carrying out the governor's orders? He asked. Omar hated Shamir. Why did Allah ever bring their path together? To the letter, he responded angrily. Why is he still alive? He's Hussein ibn Ali. No one wants to attack him. In this now, the men are getting out of control. Shamir smiled. As you wish, commander. Shamir walked back to the crowd. All right, men, we're going to attack all at once, said Shamir. Anyone who hesitates will have to answer to the governor. Shamir gave the order and the crowd of men collapsed on Hussein. Hussein was the second greatest swordsman Arabia had ever known, and his father was the first. He fought valiantly and killed two, three, four Umayyads when they charged. But there were still too many. Someone cut him in his left arm and Hussein almost lost his footing. Then another soldier ran a spear into his ribs and Hussein went down.
There was a gap in the crowd and Omar's eyes locked with Hussein's. Hussein opened his mouth, but the only thing that came out was blood. And then the light flickered from his eyes. Epilogue Al-Kufa, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya Kufa, 61 A.H. This was a profitable day, thought the soldier as he entered the city. This day turned out quite all right after all. At first, he did not want to join the army that went out to meet Hussein. After all, he had written a letter two months ago inviting him to Kufa. But then he thought this might be a chance to win the governor's favor and so he decided to go after all. He patted the severed head that swung from his saddle. It had belonged to an elderly Shiite named Habib al-Mudahir. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad would reward him well for killing that old rebel. The soldier thought he heard something and looked behind him. Nothing was there. He shrugged and continued. Getting Habib's head was no easy task. The soldiers had almost come to blows arguing over it. A rebel's head was very valuable. He thought he saw something out of the corner of his eye and stopped his horse. He looked around, feeling like he was being watched. Suspicious, he grabbed the hilt of his sword and urged the horse forward. Someone's coming to steal my head, he thought. Well, let them try. He stopped in front of the palace gates and hopped off the horse. He looked around nervously as he tied it to a post and tucked the head under his arm. There was a squeak and the man whirled around, holding his sword out. Behind him, a young boy was staring at the head. The soldier breathed a sigh of relief and put the sword away. What's wrong with you, boy? Why are you following me? The boy pointed a finger at the head. That's my father! The soldier was struck by that. He did not expect to come across the dead man's family. Oh, well, well, I'm sorry, son. These things happen in war. It was nothing personal, mind you, just doing my duty. Will you give it to me? I want to bury it. The soldier shook his head. I'm sorry, lad. Your father was a rebel and the governor will give me a good reward for it. The boy began weeping and the soldier took pity on him. Look, I'm sorry, lad, but this is life. Sometimes it can be tough. Hey, what's your name, son? The boy stopped crying and looked up. His eyes were red with hatred. His mouth twisted into an ugly sneer. My name is Qasim ibn Habib, the boy replied, and I will remember you. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial. And um, I know it's, it's, very, uh, it's very trying for me. It's very difficult for me to get through this episode, uh, putting, doing all the research and putting it all together. I really can't um, go into it too much right now because I have a lot of material to cover. And this is the outro portion, so I don't want to spend too much time going over other things. But there's a lot to cover in this outro portion, so I'm going to go, go as far as I can. And if it gets too long, I may have to break it up into a second episode, but we'll see. For right now, let me just first of all, as I always try to do, try to give you some insight into the different characters and the history during this period of time away from the show, things that just couldn't really fit into the main storyline. First, we have Omar ibn Sa'ad. We see him as the not the main villain, kind of like uh, the secondary villain, maybe. 
he's very conflicted during this whole time. He doesn't really want to fight Hussein, but he's driven by two things. Number one is his own material desire. He doesn't want to lose his governorship over the city of Rey, which is in north central Iran, close to modern day Tehran. And secondly, he believes he has to follow the orders of his of his commander. And he's not strong enough to stand up against his commander when his commander uh, gives him something, something uh, tells him to do something that's incorrect, something that is wrong. Omar ibn Sa'ad doesn't have the backbone and the fortitude to say, no, this is wrong. I'm going to do the right thing. And so he winds up being right there on the battlefield and pretty much orchestrating or at least being nearly directly responsible for Hussein's death. Generally, um, Omar ibn Sa'ad, he tends to blame everybody else for this predicament. He kind of blames Hussein, but he's especially upset with Ubaidullah and Shamir ibn Dhul-Jawshan. He's especially upset with those two for putting him into this position. But ultimately, when you get right down to it, Omar ibn Sa'ad, he made the decision to march against Hussein and he made the decision to fight Hussein and his family and ultimately to kill Hussein. So Omar ibn Sa'ad deserves just as much, if not more blame as, uh, as um, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Zainab bint Ali, who is Hussein's sister, she absolutely supports her brother the whole way through, but Zainab, like Hussein and like many others, I don't think she really expected it to get to this point. She never, up until the very end, like maybe the day before the actual battle, but up until that point, I don't think any of them really expected it to get to this point where Banu Umayyah would kill dozens of people from the Prophet's family, from his from his clan, from Banu Hashim. I, I don't think any of them really expected that. She lost most of the men, well, maybe not most, but many of the men in her family. Um, as we quoted in the um, show, she lost her sons. Uh, one of them was her stepson, but still she lost her sons. She lost her, her um, some of her uncles. She lost her brothers. She lost her nephews. She lost quite a bit. I mean, the whole family lost a lot, of course, but she was right there in the battlefield and, and witnessed all of this. And so... This was obviously very heartbreaking and tragic for her and for every other member of Banu Hashim who experienced that. And for the Muslim Ummah, of course, as a whole. It was a very tragic event, but I'm just, I'm just torn. I just, don't, I just cannot imagine being Zainab or anyone there seeing your family slaughtered in front of you like that. It's just really... Um, Really difficult thing to even think about. Okay, so um, next character I want to discuss a little bit is, of is, um, and Zainab's story is not quite finished yet. She put, does play another role, uh, a short role in the um, next episode, inshallah. It's a very famous conversation between her and Yazid when she finally meets him. And she's also somewhat... Um, responsible for preserving Hussein's lineage. Right now, Hussein only has one surviving son, 
um, Zain al-Abidin, the young man who was sick when the battle was going on. So she's very instrumental in keeping that young man alive. But that's for another episode. Now, um, uh, Ubaidullah. Ubaidullah is definitely the villain of this episode, of this whole thing. I mean, Ubaidullah, well, first of all, he receives Hussein's proposals and he, for a second, for a brief minute or so, he was actually considering accepting Hussein's, one of Hussein's proposals. But then Shamir ibn Dhul-Jawshan talked him out of it. And Ubaidullah continues being uh, very arrogant, very, um, very um, harsh against Hussein. And he wants Hussein to come to him and, and give him the bay'ah and give him the pledge uh, to Yazid, give Yazid the pledge, but do it through Ubaidullah. Ubaidullah could have just let it, let Hussein go and say, "Fine, go to the go to Damascus and say what you want to say to Yazid, or just go back to Mecca. Just don't come to Kufa. I've done my job. I preserved Kufa. I've obeyed the orders." But Ubaidullah was not satisfied with that. He basically wanted someone to cry uncle. He wanted to embarrass and humi- and humiliate Hussein, and all of this was because he was. Um, just the way his makeup was. He was, a, he was a politician. He was very ambitious. He was, of course, absolutely loyal to Banu Omeya. And he was also very hothead. He had a very bad temper, as you can see from all the people he killed and the way he would just do these crazy things. Um, one thing also that um, I didn't bring up really in the show, I didn't really highlight it, but he was also very young. He was uh, not even 30 years old yet when he became the governor of all of Iraq. So, which is not the Iraq that we have today. Back then, Iraq included the nation that we have of Iraq, parts of Saudi Arabia, and then parts of Persia as well. So, um, and even more than that, on into Asia and into Central Central uh, Central Asia and Iran, it was a huge amount of land that he was in control of. Uh, Yazid probably should never given to him in the first place. But nonetheless, Abdullah was young, hot-headed, cruel, very harsh, extremely ambitious, and all of that led to this um, horrific, horrific tragedy at the Battle of Karbala. Now, this is we're going to get into some points where um, I was always give my disclaimer: I'm a Sunni Muslim. I've been I've been trained and I've studied under Sunni teachers and Sunni nations and uh, even though I don't really don't care for the divisions but so much between Sunnis and Shiites, I acknowledge that my thinking, my learning, my training falls on the side of the of Sunni Muslims. So as always I'm gonna to have to give you a disclaimer with this that I, I'm going to be biased towards the Sunni version of these events and the Sunni understanding, we'll say virgin, because the virgins are very similar. But the understanding of these events are two different things. From the Sunni perspective, and the way I also wanted to put it in the in this episode was that Hussein knew he was beaten when he got to Kufa, and he the army is there. I'm sorry, not to Kufa. When he got to Dhatun Irk, and he's you know by the plains of Karbala, and Omar ibn Saad is there with his army. Hussein knows he's beaten. He knows he can't get Kufa. He knows it's over. He's ready to. Uh, essentially surrender, which is why he offers those three options. You know, he doesn't want to throw his family into destruction. He wants to 
I don't want to say give up, but he wants to save his family, you know, save his own honor. And but at the same time, he knows that he's not going to accomplish what he initially wanted was to re, which is which was to reestablish his father's caliphate. So um, now th- to be fair, I have to also present the um, the I, the opinion that there are some uh, historians who say that Hussein never offered th- these three options, but that's a minority opinion. Most of the stories I've read, um, even from Shiite historians, say that Hussein offered these three options. And so this is where we're going to get to some differences between the Sunni and the Shia understanding is because, and I'll get to this a little bit more later, is that Shiites tend to see this as, as um, Hussein was, was, went on this mission as a religious mission and that he knew he was going to die and this was part of his, this was his religious sacrifice. He intended to sacrifice his life for Islam and for this cause of his, and this was part of his, his intention. Whereas a Sunni understanding of it is that Hussein expected to win. <laughs> he wanted he wanted to be successful. He did not go into this thing expecting to die or wanting to die. Maybe at some point, of course, once Ubaidullah gave him the ultimatum, once he saw his family was killed, once he saw that uh, Banu Amaya was intent on humiliating him, maybe then, at that point in time, he understood that, okay, well, I'm going to go out like a man. I'm going to go out like a warrior. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die like a warrior. At that point in time, he perhaps he intended to die or he intended to sacrifice himself, but not from the beginning. From the beginning, he expected to win. He absolutely intended to win. I don't, I don't see how that can be interpreted any other way. But the thing was that he just couldn't surrender to Ubaidullah. Um, he probably was willing to, if not give Bayat to Yazid, at the very least, end his rebellion. We don't know if he wanted to really give Beatu Yazid the different opinions about that part, whether he actually went to give Beatu Yazid. But whatever the case, absolutely, Hussein was prepared to end his rebellion, admit defeat, and walk away from the whole thing. Absolutely. But there were a few things stopping him. For one, he could not, his honor and his nobility would not allow him to surrender and give the Beya and, and hold the hand of somebody like Obedullah, try to put yourself in Hussein's shoes when you have the sons of Muslim Ibn Aqil, who was killed by this governor. How could Hussein then go and take Obedullah's hand and submit to him like that and you know, kiss his ring? Or I don't think they kissed rings and stuff like that. But still, how could he go and take Obedullah's hand, the same hand that that ordered the death of his cousin, essentially? And, he, and then his cousin's children are there with him in his group. Hussein couldn't do that, especially when Ubaidullah was such a uh, um, dishonorable character. Not just the fact that his father lied about their lineage being from Banu Umayyah, not just that, but all the evil things that Ubaidullah and his father Yazid ibn Abihi did, all the Muslims that they killed, all the innocent people that they killed, there's no way Hussein could uh, bring himself to just give Bayat through to grab Ubaidullah's hand and give him bayah. That would have been dishonorable for him. Hussein's stature was way too high. Hussein was a Sahaba, a grand, the grandson of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, the son of a caliph. There's no way he could, maybe it's hard to understand in our day and age, but I'm pretty sure all of us can see there's some things that are worse than death. 
and for Hussein, you know, that form of humiliation was worse than death. Now, for this whole tragedy, I know I'm not going to be able to finish everything that I wanted to finish today, but definitely um, we wanted to start laying some blame out for this tragedy. Most of the blame belongs to the Sharia of Kufa, those people, those partisans of Ali who called Hussein to Kufa when Hussein sent his cousin, Muslim Ibn Aqil, they abandoned Muslim Ibn Aqil. When Hussein was camped at Dhatul Irq, just a few miles from Kufa, when Hussein only had barely 200 people and only about 100 fighting men facing 4,000, the people of Kufa, who were only a few miles away, did nothing to help him. A few of them did come out. We mentioned some of their names. A few of them did come out to support Hussein, but it, it was less than 20. Okay, from the thousands of people who initially sent, um, who initially called for Hussein and gave bayah to Muslim, uh, Muslim Ibn Aqil in Kufa, from all those people, less than 20, I'm really less than 10, actually came from Kufa to support Hussein. I'm, I'm being generous if I say 10. So they abandoned Muslim Ibn Aqil, they abandoned Hussein, and they've been beating themselves up for it literally and figuratively ever since and the region of, of iraq iraq it has it has had trouble ever since then there's been multiple rebellions and uprisings and warfare massacres um it was during the the banu Umayyah, during the rest of their caliphate they're going to have a whole bunch of problems there the abbas is going to have a whole bunch of problems there eventually the um the uh, Mongols come through and, and wipe out Baghdad. And then in our day and time, we have the brutal um, Saddam Hussein, who was in charge there. Then you have two American wars. And now you got ISIS. Iraq has been just pummeled throughout history. And I'm not going to sit here and say that all this is because of Iraq's or Kufa's betrayal of Hussein ibn Ali, radiallahu anhumah. But... You know, a lot of that, a lot of the problems started after this, um, the the massacre at Karbala. And Allah knows best. We really can't. There's a lot more I wanted to get into. I wanted to discuss more about the differences between Sunni and Sharia, but that may have to wait for next week. I'm going to have to do a separate episode on that one, inshallah. Going to be a few weeks before I have the next episode out. So in between that, I think I'll do another episode on the differences between Sunni and Shia and the long-term effects of the massacre at Karbala. So inshallah, in the uh, next true episode, I'm going to give you another episode on the uh, differences and comparing uh, Sunnis and Shiites a little bit. Then in the next true episode, we're going to start discussing the, the shift towards Ibn Zubair's role in the second fitna and the things that he did. And um, we'll get to that, inshallah, when the time comes. For right now, we're going to wrap this up. Um, just a few going out notes. First, uh, the Muslim podcast of the week for this week is Prison World Radio Hour from Dawa International LLC is hosted by the husband and wife team of Ruf, Rufus and Jenny Triplett. Now, they've been involved in many different forms of media, radio, television, internet, social media, you name it. They are pretty much all over the place. Uh, but their general focus is on marriage, business, and activism, and particularly activism for the incarcerated, hence the, na hence the name of uh, Prison World Radio. 
So it's, they have a very interesting and very good uh, podcast, actually. And they have a very good series going on right now that I think is really fascinating. It is uh, discussing having a, a series of interviews with African-American Muslim women activists. So that's something you don't hear about too often. And um, African-American Muslims are often a overlooked paradigm of Islam. And African-American Muslim women are even more overlooked. And so I think this is a very good um, episode that they put together. This one that we have today, they interview Marguerite Aziza Hill, who is the co-founder of uh, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. We'll have links to both um, Prison World Radio Hour, the program, the podcast, as well as to Sister Marguerite's um, uh, group collaborative, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Well, links to both have been the show notes, which will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Kardabala2. Kardabala, I'm spelling K-A-R-B-A-L-A, then the number two. You'll find the show notes there. When you get to the show notes, you'll have links to share the show with other people if you do, if you choose to do so. There'll also be a links to support the show, which you can do at patreon.com slash Islamic History. There'll be a transcript of the show. It's going to be very little, fairly long, as you can see. And of course, links to the podcast, uh, the Prison World Radio Hour. So with that, inshallah, we're going to close out with a few minutes from the Prison World Radio Hour podcast. Until next episode, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Well, tell our listeners a little bit what I may have left off the resume because, you know, just with, with all the people that we're interviewing, I can't cover it all. We, you know, we, we're a list, we're, we're, as my husband would say, we're dragging our resumes through the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, part of like how I got into this work is through my struggles in higher education. Um, I'm a non-traditional student. Um, you know, I, I came from a working class background, single mother, you know, we had, um, addiction issues in our family and, um, you know, and, and growing up, I didn't want to be a statistic. Um, and a lot of ways for me to read, like for my own kind of self definition and finding a sense of purpose. I mean, I became Muslim at 18, you know, during the early nineties as a way to, um, liberate myself and for the upliftment of my people and to connect with my African identity. Um, the people that influenced my Islam, um, there were a couple of, um, it was actually a family friend and his sons were young Muslim men that were engaged. And I thought like with black women and so black love was like, was a huge part of like just the black family and how Islam could repair the black family. The other part of my journey was as a non-traditional student um, working my way through school where it took me 10 years to get my undergraduate degree. So I have a passion towards providing education opportunities towards, uh, you know, for those of us who struggled. I believe in second, third, and fourth chances. I know and that's I right. <laughs> People inspire me, you know, people have been locked up, get degrees, get master's degrees and make change in their community. And that inspires me.